Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 26. I am your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally respected and award-winning Vermont author, Doug Wilhelm. <laughs> Thanks, Barney. It's nice of you to say that. <laughs> you do have some awards. You got some... I, it's on your website. You got some pretty fancy awards you got on there too. Well, yeah, I, I had a, a novel uh, that came out in 2019 called uh, Street of Storytellers that uh, won some awards in the in the world of independently published books. Right. So you know, it was um, it was nice to get those awards. Uh, it, it was also the time that the pandemic hit, right? Right when that book was out and the those awards were coming in, so so okay. it was tough because I couldn't. I had COVID. Um, I was one of the early COVID. Oh wow! Okay, early adopter of COVID. I got it in <laughs> April of 2020, and that was right right when the book had just come out. And then it w- wins these awards, and I can't even leave my room. Right. You know, so it was it was kind of a double edged situation. But it was wow. nice to get those that recognition for that book. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, and that was, and that was through our, the, their mutual contact through Rootstock publishing as well. That was published through. That was a Rootstock book. Yeah. Rootstock okay. being, you no know, small publisher in Montpelier, the good yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 That was a book that um I had, uh, there's a long story behind that book and I could, I could, I could bore you the, through the whole podcast with it. But basically, you know, I had, I had tried and I have an agent in New York who had really tried to get a, a major publisher to pick up on that book. And, and we couldn't, they just, they just didn't think it was commercial and Rootstock picked right up on it. And I thought they did a beautiful job. They, I mean, it's a really nicely put together book, really nicely designed. I, I, I couldn't have been happier with that process. It's tough with a small publisher to get noticed, which is why those awards, you know, helped. Right. And that was through, and I, if, if I recall correctly from my research, that was based, uh, based off of your experience, um, when Pakistan in the, in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'll try to be really brief with this because like I said, I could go on forever, but, uh, <laughs> I was a newspaper guy in New Jersey where I'd grown up. I was editing a weekly paper um, in the in the late 70s. And I had traveled after college to made the old overland trip in the late 70s to uh, from England through Europe, uh, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan to, to India and Nepal. And I was gone for about six months. And when I came back and got involved in newspaper work, I just really wanted to get back out there and I wanted to write a book. And mm-hmm. so... I, I I left after uh, five years in, in the newspapers uh, and I traveled up through basically from the coast of the Persian Gulf um, on an old British steamship to Pakistan and up through Pakistan and way up into Kashmir and Ladakh and the, beyond the Himalayas. And, uh, and I was gone a couple of years and I wrote a book, a nonfiction book about encountering the the rise of extremism in, in Pakistan was basically what it was about. And, and and that book was rejected 75 times. That was my first book. It was never, never published. And uh, But many, many years later, I had I'd been writing young adult novels and I had a number of young adult novels. So I returned. I still had all my material, um, a whole banker's box full of notes and notebooks and newspaper clippings and, uh, you know, all this stuff. And I did a whole bunch of new research and, and developed this novel that I aimed at the YA audience. Um, right. I wanted to put 
I, by that point, I'd been working a lot and doing a lot of school visits, talking a lot with middle school and early high school readers. And, and I thought a lot of them were really smart and interested in the world. And I wanted to create a story that would put them in another part of the world in a dangerous place and time um, through the eyes of an American teenage mm -hmm. narrator. So that, that's what became of my original book, which, which came out finally in 2019 as Street of Storytellers. Right. That's me telling the story that I could make an hour long, but we don't want to. Well, so I, I'm also curious about, too, because since you were sitting on that story for a long time, yeah, how different did your first draft of that look as compared oh. to what was published? You mean the first draft of the novel or the very first draft of the original book? Because the original book was a nonfiction book for adults. Um, and so that was, you know, that was very different. Um, it was, I wanted to put my, my idea was to put myself as a naive Westerner in this world. I did some research, but but basically I wanted to go as a sort of, you know, open open mind, open eyes and and see what I experienced and try to render it in a way that would be a good story, you know, like right. you're making fiction. And uh, that was my idea. I was a very young writer. It was my first book. I was trying to do something kind of large in concept. And I did produce the book. Like I said, it was rejected 75 times. That was a nonfiction book. When I came back many years later to work on this as a novel set in, right. in West Pakistan, I was able to draw. I looked through all my old notebooks and my draft, my book that I'd written originally, and and letters that I'd written, and and I did pull like descriptions of walking through the bazaar in Peshawar, Pakistan, where this book is set. Um, some of the characters in the in the novel are based on people I knew and originally wrote about. I would change things, and some of them are completely made up. So it was a mixture of of my own um, experiences with you know, fiction writing, um, right. as, as I mean, most fiction writing is, after all, a mixture of your own reality, your own experiences, and and what you can imagine and develop through research. So, yeah. And, and, and we're, we're going to talk in, in, a, in a little bit about your latest book, Catalyst for Change. But I'm, I'm curious to ask you, as you say, because you got you cut your teeth before before we went on the air, you were talking about how you kind of cut your teeth on writing young adult novels. Yeah. And yeah. How different is the the creative process on writing a an adult novel as compared to a young adult novel? Well, I'm writing it, Barney. I've I've never really written an adult novel. Street of Storytellers. Um, my this was my seventeenth book, and all of them up till then, this that were published right. were written for young readers, um, mostly for middle schoolers or were YA. Um, this was also aimed at that same audience, but the publisher, Rootstock, thought it would have appeal to adults as well. So they kind of framed it as YA slash adult. That was fine with me. Whoever wanted to read it was fine with me. But um, uh, in, in the challenges in writing for adolescents, for young young adults, is that you're not one of them, you know? It's mm -hmm. Looks like it might be easier because usually the books are not that long unless they're fantasy. I'm a realistic fiction writer, so you know you got to be around 200, 250 pages, or they won't publish it. You know because the idea is that those readers that that age group won't read a long book unless it's fantasy. Um, but to put yourself in the in the in the world and the emotions and the intensity of the experience of being a seventh grader, an eighth grader. 
um, a ninth grader is a challenge for sure. And especially in this age where uh, technology and social media is so predominant, something I did not grow up with. And, uh, uh, and, and I struggled with that in a couple of the, the novels I wrote for the, that, that audience. And it was really interesting. So I think, you know, one of the, re- for me, a relief in writing for adults, because my newest book is nonfiction for adults about a Vermont subject, um, uh, is that I'm writing for adults like me. Some people who know me might might suggest that I'm not totally as adult as I might be. <laughs> I used to say that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, when I was writing for middle schoolers, it was easier because we were on the same maturity level. But uh, but you know, writing for grownups, you're you're writing for people on your on your in your world. Whereas trying to write for young people, it's always sort of a an adventure to try to get there and, um, and see what the world through their eyes. Right. And that's a very intense time of life too. You know, it's a time of a lot of change and, and upheaval and confusion. Being a seventh, eighth grader, it's almost nobody remembers that as an easy time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of curious as you, as you brought it up is when, yeah. when you were sitting there writing for, for youth and now you, and as we said, like your, 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 your book now catalyst for change, right? The genres are so different, and your your stories of like uh, you kind of do you write as an author? Do you write the books you want to read, or are you writing the books that you think people are going to want to read? These are really good questions. Um, I think you need to write the books you would want to write. I mean, that you would want to read exactly. I I think that's the those are the stories, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, that uh, you're going to get invested in and involved in because you want to read it. Now, I was a big reader as an awkward, strange, um, ill-fitting adolescent. Books were really important to me, so that was a way that I could connect with writing for, for young adults um, as an adult. Um, but I also have a background, as I mentioned, in journalism. I first came to Vermont in the um, early 80s, and I was the Boston Globe's Montpelier reporter in through from the mid-80s into the early 90s. And that was my last proper journalism job. Um, but I've been writing for adults ever since as a freelancer, doing work for nonprofits, foundations, some businesses in Vermont, um, you know, publication work on contract. But my background is in that journalism. So um, the current book is a, a work of journalism. And uh, yeah, it, for me, and we can talk more about that, but it was it was really meaningful and involving to, to write about uh, Vermont issues and and the organizations, nonprofits mostly that are trying to make positive change in in environmental, energy, journalism, healthcare, uh, land conservation. So that was you know these are issues that I've cared about and been writing about as a writer ever since the eighties. Right. That's you know what you just made me you just answered one of my questions. I was going to ask you. I was going to say when you wrote when you when you wrote Catalyst for Change. Were you wearing yeah. your author hat or your journalist hat? <laughs> I don't have, really have. I don't. I don't know that I qualify as a, a real journalist anymore because it's been a long time. Um, I've been basically a writer for hire for for a long time, along with writing these young adult uh, books. But um, one of the clients, the story behind this book, Catalyst for Change, the subtitle is "How Nonprofits and a Foundation Are Helping Shape Vermont's Future." And uh, the story focuses on nonprofits in Vermont. Um, I mentioned the 
different issue areas. So it covers a number of different um, complex public issues and how these nonprofits uh, from the Conservation Law uh, Foundation to Vermont Public Interest Research Group, Trust for Public Land, uh, the University of Vermont, uh, uh, and uh, some others have addressed those issues. Well, a lot of those nonprofits have been clients of mine over the years. I've written newsletters and annual reports and, you know, fundraising materials, whatever they needed, and nowadays websites. So uh, a lot of the people over the years, in my years being a, a writer in Vermont, a lot of the people that I've come to really, really admire most are people in these nonprofits who work really hard for not a lot of money trying to make this state a better place. Mm. So the opportunity to write this book came through a foundation called the Lindelac Foundation, right. which is a Vermont a family foundation based in Shelburne. Very well known if you if you work in environmental, energy, uh, healthcare, especially women's health, uh, journalism. They're a major supporter of, of nonprofits working in those areas, uh, and they are just in in a couple of years. I think they will be fifty years old. Wow. So uh, I was asked by Cree Lindelac, who's the director of the foundation to write the story of the foundation that didn't focus on the foundation itself, but on the nonprofits that they've supported and worked with and how those organizations have been able to make a difference. So it was an opportunity. Um, it was also a job. Um, and I was really grateful to have both of those. And uh, it, what, what I've said about this book is that as a journalist or a former journalist, you know, there's no New Yorker magazine in Vermont. There's not even really, a, there's not a Vermont life anymore. Um, there is not a venue, a publication that will commission a really in-depth look at, for example, uh, one of the chapters in this book is about how can Vermont transition to a clean energy economy? That is a very complicated subject. And uh, I was able through this project to, to, uh, tell that story and where where the state is at, at and how it's gotten there over the last 20 years. Well, there's no there's no publication that will commission you as a journalist to to put that story together in real depth. So the opportunity to do that over, uh, about a number of different really key subjects, not just energy, that was what that book gave me. And uh, so, yeah, it was really exciting. And, and to me, as I said, so many people that I got to write about, I've admired and and I got a chance to really tell their stories right. and stories of the groups they work with. So I'm I'm kind of curious as well, you know, with that said, is like, is there it's almost as if the tone of the book seems to be I I the inspiration by necessity, like optimism by necessity. That's good. Did you, was that one of the things as they commissioned your book? It's like, is there was there a tone that they were requesting to say you have to make sure the book ends like or tells this type of thing? Or no, no. Um, I had worked a little bit with the Lindelac Foundation before. I'd done a, an annual report for them. I'd done a presentation for them. So I, I knew Cree Lindelac. Her husband Phil are the they, they're people who and now they're grown children who guide the foundation. So I knew Cree and her family a bit. Um, when she asked me to do this book, she's very hands-off. Um, she's involved um, in a lot of these issues. She's in the state house a lot. She'll, she sits on the VPIRG board. She's very active and, and can be outspoken. But for example, she is a, the Little Act Foundation is a major supporter of BT Digger. It's a major supporter of the Vermont um, 
Vermont Edition on VPR, the Vermont This Week program on uh, on public television. And I interviewed people uh, in those different uh, programs and and um, you know VT Digger. And what they told told me was they the Linolacs don't tell you what they want you to say. They don't they don't interfere with editorial content. They don't they they, they don't propose a slant. They don't react if you, they don't agree with you. Uh, they're just supportive. And my experience was basically like that. Uh, Cree said to me, I want this book. Um, I want it not to focus on us, but on the nonprofits and how they've been able to make a difference. And that was basically it. I just went ahead and did it. And, uh, and I, she would suggest people I could talk with. She gave some feedback to draft chapters but she never said write it this way or take this viewpoint or draw this conclusion at all. So, and I think I wouldn't have been that comfortable if she had. Um, but so it was a it was an ideal project because I just was told to go for it and I did. So was was there anything that you've kind of discovered on your own as you put this book together that you were surprised about that that it hasn't been talked about as much as you would think it would have been? Um, well, that's a good question. What am I surprised about? Well, uh, for example, journalism. Uh, one of the chapters in this book is called In Pursuit of Truth, which is the motto of V.T. Digger. And I thought made a great chapter title because V.T. Digger is kind of the main character in the chapter about um, can can local and responsible journalism survive in Vermont? Uh, and, and interviewing Ann Galloway, who's the founder and, and, and director, leader of V.T. Digger, she talked about, I'm, I'm paging through, um, how many uh, journalists we have lost in Vermont over the last, she said, I found the page, she said, uh, um, when VT Digger, she started, I thought, wow, if we had 10 reporters, we could cover everything in the state. This was, VT um, Digger started in 2009. She said, but even with a newsroom larger than that today, we're still not cutting it. We're not covering everything. We're missing 20,000 reporters in this country now. In my state, we're missing 50 reporters. We're not making up the difference. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. So, and people like me who are old newspaper people or journalists of different venues, we're all really aware that journalism is really struggling. Um, papers have folded all over the country, big city papers, small papers, um, and uh, jobs have gone away. Uh, and, uh, and and how does democracy survive without, uh, without a, a vital, robust journalism? And so one of the major concerns of the foundation has been to help um, journalism survive and evolve. You know, journalism is not, print journalism Journalism is not profitable anymore. Um, you know, ju- uh, local papers sometimes can get by. I live in Middlebury and the Addison Independent is one of the great papers in the country. It's our weekly paper. But but big city papers have folded all over the country because they can't compete with Craigslist. They can't compete with online advertising. Um, so what Ann Galloway told me from VT Digger is I asked her, how can Vermont journalism survive? And she said, well, it's basically got to be nonprofit. Um, it's got to look to fundraising and foundations and, and, and individual supporters in ways that other nonprofits do. And if it can do that well, it can survive. So, so that was a chapter where, you know, I was aware of VT Digger. I didn't know they have now the largest newsroom in the state, bigger than Burlington Free Press, bigger than the Valley News, bigger than uh, the electronic um, media. Um, I had no idea. And I, I was aware that journalism had struggled. And my old newspaper pals were like, you know, we don't know how 
how how can anybody go into journalism today? There don't seem to be the opportunities. What's going to happen? But to get into that story and really report it, I discovered that there are uh, there are ideas and um, innovations like this nonprofit news website in Vermont that now has the largest newsroom in the state. That was surprising to me. Um, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize the extent to which VT Digger had become the the news source. And especially during the pandemic, they they've become the go-to news source in the state. That was one area that was that was really surprising and, and obviously close to my own my own heart. Did you see anything that uh, as you're putting this book together, some of these innovations that you've you've discovered, any of them unique to Vermont culture, or is this something that you've kind of seen that is Across well, the board to other... So uh, another chapter in the book is about the campaign to close Vermont Yankee. Mm. This is called a retiring Vermont Yankee. And Vermont Yankee uh, closed down in 2011, 2012, after about a 20-year campaign by VPIRG um, and the, the Citizens Awareness Network down in southern Vermont and a number of other smaller nonprofits to uh, to get it to shut down, you know, the nuclear, one of the nation's oldest nuclear power plants. And uh, um, this is a classic Vermont story because it's very much a David and Goliath story. To me, that's probably the best story in this book is the campaign to retire Vermont Yankee, which finally did succeed. Vermont Yankee did close in, I think it was two, early 2012 when they finally did shut down. Wait a minute. Um, no, uh, no, I'm wrong about that. It was... Um, 2016. I think it was 2016. Hmm. No, 2014. I finally found it. 2014. So, so um, this is a classic Vermont kind of David and Goliath story. You know, these are VPIRG, for example, the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, which was kind of the lead organization in this very sophisticated campaign uh, that led up to a Vermont State Senate vote in 2010 to oppose the renewal of the Yankees' operating license. And that was the first time that that had happened in this country, that a, a legislature had had blocked or opposed the uh, the renewal of a, of a nuclear power plant's license. So you, the, these organizations like VPIRG are up against Entergy, which is a major, major corporation in the energy business based in uh, I think in Louisiana, uh, that owned Vermont Yankee, that had bought it from Vermont Utilities. And this is a major corporation. And the nuclear power industry is very, very powerful. And so it was really a cool Vermont story because these organizations, you know, they were doing summer, like VPIRC summer um, pledge drive, membership drive, going door to door, uh, talking about Vermont Yankee, uh, raising money uh, from individual Vermonters. And, uh, and they took on this enormous power structure and they won mm. <laughs> it wasn't just the nonprofits it was also uh, Vermont legislators who took a stand and in the end it was uh, partly the economy of the power the energy industry all those things kind of came together to, to um, convince energy to shut down Yankee and give it up but without that campaign uh, it's doubtful that would that decision would have been made mm. and so where do you see uh, as you, you talk about the Linthalac Foundation and yeah. Anybody from Vermont knows knows them. As you say, you, you've listened to Vermont PBS or 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 Vermont Public Radio. You're gonna you're you're gonna hear them. You hear the uh, name, yeah. Yeah, you hear the name. Yeah. Did you have because you're and a part of it you're focusing on the book about the nonprofit sector. Was anything on here where it, it kind of shows to life as well of like the innovations of small Vermont businesses as well? 
Well, yeah. Okay. So the, the, the chapter in the book that follows Vermont Yankee and kind of dovetails with it is about the effort to transition from a fossil fuel-based economy in Vermont to a renewable, sustainable energy economy. And the Vermont Yankee story obviously kind of leads into that. Yankee provided a third of our power for, oh gosh, um, 30 years, I think. And the, the chapter that follows that, that saga of the Yankee um, is called uh, Toward a Clean Energy Future. Within this, and this is Toward a Clean Energy Future. I mean, I tried to tell a good story, but this is a complex, complex story to tell because, um, you know, moving from a fossil fuel economy toward a clean energy economy, obviously we're not all the way there that that by any means we've made great strides in the elect electricity sector not so much in transportation or home heating of the energy economy in vermont but um one of the great stories in this grew out of vperg the nonprofit work one of the nonprofits working on this effort um uh two guys who were uh vperg um part of the vperg leadership um one of them was James Moore, who was the director of VPIRG's uh, uh, clean energy um, um, campaign. And uh, another guy who's, um, I'm, think of his name, um, Dwayne Peterson, was, uh, I think he was president of the board. Um, Dwayne was a political activist, um, very experienced from California, who'd moved to Vermont. They saw the opportunity to uh, create a business that would make home solar and small scale solar um, really easy to adopt. They they came up with a business model uh, and that would, as a homeowner, for example, uh, you wouldn't have to put up any money, but you would end up owning the system. And I could talk about how that works, but, but basically uh, they created Sun Common, which is a business based in Waterbury now that grew out of VPIRG and, and then became a profit making business. Um, which has has really really made an impact in Vermont. A major part of the home energy solar market in Vermont uh, has been, I think, something like eighty percent. It's in the book somewhere. Has been supplied by Sun Common. So they had this idea. They were both um, camp political campaigners. They knew how to to put a, a campaign together, and they decided to take that approach to creating a startup business with this idea of making it uh, very easy and. Uh, affordable to bring solar into your home, to your small business, uh, to a community project. And in some common, it was a, kind of a cool story that is part of that and uh, and has been a model, I think, for for others around the country. But they, that's one business that grew out of this. The you know, Catalyst for Change is focused on nonprofits more than businesses. But another one in that story, the uh, in that story of the, the clean energy movement is how Green Mountain Power became one of the country's leading utilities in innovation that supports, um, for example, making it possible for you to have a um, battery system in your home that can store energy and then release it when it's needed. Um, and that's another one of the ways that Green Mountain Power became, they were written up in the New Yorker at one point as being one of the more progressive uh, uh, utilities in the country that was really working to uh, to help people make this transition to clean energy. And I'm kind of curious too, as you're, as you're bringing that up, just recently there was a, a recently a report came out that said that statistically speaking, Vermont is going to be, have the least impact in global climate change. Do you see 
the timeliness of this book. Yeah, the the big the, the campaign in Vermont, which which uh, businesses, nonprofits, civic organizations all over the state in large numbers had supported this uh, movement for to a clean toward a clean energy economy. Had a, played a big role in the final passage and adoption last year of the Global Warming Solutions Act, which Vermont is in the process of figuring out how to enact. Now it's a very complicated. Um, uh, very complicated law that whose whole aim is to move us more towards clean energy and to do it in a way that's equitable so that um, less advantaged communities can benefit as much as the wealthier parts of the state or the wealthier communities. Um, so that's a big achievement uh, that that uh, I talk about in the book. And I think that is one example of one thing that kind of comes through in the, in the book that I was aware of and have been aware of ever since my days writing for the globe is that Vermont is sort of a laboratory for positive change in this country, partly because we're small, partly because we are fairly sort of progressive. I don't mean that in a really political way. I just mean that um, Vermonters will try positive progressive ideas, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in education, whether it's in energy and environment, journalism, um, a lot of different areas you can point to, and the book does point to, where Vermonters have tried something or introduced an idea that we've been able to try out, uh, field test, make work, and then then has been adopted and adapted by larger states and you know in communities around the country. So we're small, but we have had a big an outsized impact. You know, you, you could talk and talk about different ways. The the Catalyst for Change starts with the way the Lindelac Foundation got started in the very early 1970s was by helping to bring the very first hospital-based nurse midwives, what some, two of the very first nurse midwives into the American hospital system in the Burlington Hospital. That was a passion of the founder of the Linelac Foundation, Claire, uh, Claire Linelac, who passed away in, the, in 1986. But she was a nurse whose passion was maternity care. And so she worked, she saw that there was this emerging demand among women who are going to have babies to be cared for by women. At the time, in the 70s, um, you know, birthing, labor, and delivery was very much of a male-dominated, uh, you know, uh, medical practice. Obstetricians were mostly male, and uh, and women wanted women to care for them, and and midwives uh, were usually women. And uh, so, the, Claire Linelac worked with the chief of OBGYN at the Burlington Hospital to bring two British nurse midwives onto the hospital staff in the early 70s. And uh, and now today, uh, nurse midwifery is very much of a thriving big part of what's now called the Lintelac Birthing Center at the at the UVM Medical Center. And, and, and nurse midwives are in, in, in birthing centers and hospitals all over the state. And that has that was a really pioneering innovation that, that uh, helped to make it um, uh, acceptable and successful to have women actually participate in labor and delivery. And obviously there are female obstetricians at UVM now, as well as any other places, but, but that opened up this idea that um, a different approach to uh, labor and delivery could be provided by nurse midwives and that's gained acceptance all over the country. So that's another one of the stories of how Vermont kind of uh, pioneered a positive change that has grown and been adopted elsewhere. And do you, now I'm curious because there's, 
the, the amount that you can write about this topic is expansive. Yeah. Did you have to edit it down at all? Do you have like stacks of notes? You're like, I can't fit it oh, in. Am I going to, I have to do a sequel or anything like that? Yeah. Well, you know, here's something about, um, so my background combines journalism with fiction writing and in, in fiction writing, but also in the work I've done in, in journalism years ago, um, I'm interested in stories, you know? I like to read good stories, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, um, that capture my interest, that I keep reading because I care about the characters, I care about the subject, and I find it to be a good story. So um, I, in, in putting these, these chapters, each one of them a story in the book together, I was looking for the story, whether it was the story of bringing nurse midwives into the hospital system in America, um, in Vermont, or whether it was a story of, of how journalism can adapt to a world where uh, it's not print journalism is no longer a thriving industry, um, to uh, how Vermont can um, adapt to climate change uh, and, and transit, transform its economy. I was looking for the story to tell. and. Uh, so that was my sort of way of, of um, approaching it. And each one of these uh, uh, stories, especially like the energy part, the energy chapters, they were really complex. And there was a lot of research. There was a lot of interviewing and gathering of facts and reading of materials and, and uh, looking at news stories. Um, but in the end, what I looked for was the narrative, the story that there was to tell that was meaningful. So that's a good point. In, in order to try to find the story, did that help trying to make complex issues more accessible for yeah. readers? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to me that in this particular book, um, uh, characters make a story move. You you want to be able to identify with the characters. So the, the main characters in these chapters are these nonprofits and the people at them who've been working on issues like land conservation is another one. Um, and, uh, 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 another big area that I haven't talked about, there's a big chapter about is how do we clean up Lake Champlain? How do we address the cyanobacteria and blue-green algae problem in the lake that is really grown to be a big problem? Um, uh, and it, it relates to uh, phosphorus emissions from farms, from, from urban areas, from um, suburban paved uh, areas, all kinds of areas of the Vermont uh, economy. So it's a complex problem. Um, but uh, for example, in that one, the, uh, the Conservation Law Foundation is the major player and, and a couple of people at the foundation who've been sort of battling in the courts to, to get Vermont to face up to this problem. They become sort of the, the main characters in that story, or some of the main characters. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the midwives in the midwifery story, um, the people at VPIRG in the, in, in the story about uh, uh, campaigning to close Vermont Yankee. So those those characters, those real people become sort of the heroes of the story. And, and you know, issues are in, important, but unless you can humanize them, uh, it's hard to keep people's attention. So as a researcher, that's a good, that's a good question. It's a good point. So as yeah. a researcher for this, did you first find the topic and then look for the story? Or did you have yeah. a really good story and say, okay, what is this story about? You know, I, honest to God, that was all the direction I got from 
<laughs> was, was we just want this story to focus on the nonprofits and how they've been able to make a difference. They didn't say focus on midwifery, focus on land conservation, energy, um, um, the lake. They just said, go ahead and do it. And so I really started in an open-ended way to say, well, what are the important stories here? You know, so I looked at what, what, were the nonprofits the foundation had supported? I looked at the grant list for for almost fifty years, and uh, what were the major themes that jumped out as you looked at those lists? Who did they support, and why? What were the projects? What were the efforts that they supported? And uh, and so the stories began to come together. And obviously, I was aware, for example, of the cyanobacteria problem in the lake, although not really in great detail. I was aware of the campaign to close for my Yankee. Um, and so I had some background just as a regular Vermont a newsreader, you know, but not a lot in most of these areas. It was all, you know, I had a lot to learn. But so I started in that open-ended way. What what are the major stories here that I can develop out of what really happened? There are other um, projects the foundation has supported. For example, um, the campaign to end childhood hunger. We really, we just have a photo and a caption that deals with that. We could have done more, but um, I, I didn't see it as the same kind of narrative emerging. And um, people who are care who are passionate about that, I'm sure would disagree. But so I had to make some of those choices because you couldn't tell every story. Did you have a, a, a point where you probably had some, so my question for you as, you know, putting on your author hat, asking some questions for, authors that might be listening or how was the editing process for this oh well i did work with a very very good copy editor you need editors obviously right. um so i found we found and worked with a really really good copy editor in western massachusetts who uh, uh was recommended to me she had edited michelle obama's uh very successful memoir and a lot of other books she was really really good and uh and so, you know, she gave me, copy editors give you really close feedback. That's their job. And they question a lot of things and they check a lot of things or make you check a lot of things. And so, yeah, I needed that. Um, you know, this these stories, each one of them, each chapter is pretty complex. Um, the source, the bibliography for this book runs to 6,000 words. It's just page after page of articles and books and interviews. Um, and then I worked again with a toward the end with a proofreader. She's based in, I think, Barrie, also very professional and very good. And each one of those people really put me through the ringer. Um, you know, you need that. Uh, you need editors. Uh, writers, you know, you're so close to the story that it's hard to see what where you might be confusing the reader or where the uh, gaps in your information might be or, or what mistakes you've made, of which I made plenty, believe me. Hopefully they're not still in there, but we, we, we got a lot of stuff that would have been embarrassing, um, you know, from small things to larger things. But that's what the editor's job is. How was your process? I'm kind of curious about this. How was your process putting this book together as compared to your, your previous book, The Street of Storytellers? So, yeah, I mean, nonfiction and fiction are different um, for me. Um for example, one of my young adult novels before Street of Storytellers, I counted something like 24 drafts, you know? And I mean, that with fiction, that 
is necessary, at least for me, because the characters and the story develops from just really a sketch in your first draft that it de they develop and evolve from draft to draft in ways that you probably are going to be surprised by. And that's sort of a natural process um, because you're creating something, you know, whereas with nonfiction, uh, it's not that it's not challenging, but for me, I found that the research was the most challenging part. When it came to the writing, uh, finding that story among that mountain of material was not easy, but it didn't take 24 drafts, you know? Um, it's more a matter of um, finding the story and, and writing it and then, you know, uh, working to improve the writing and refine the writing, but there's not the same evolutionary draft by draft by draft by draft process for me that there is in fiction. And I think probably fairly, and I don't want to minimize the, the, uh, the challenge of writing nonfiction at all. I just think it's a little different. Right. And so where do you, what's next for you? Doing? Well, right now, um, Barney, I'm, I'm finishing another book that it's a okay. non book that is a history of the community college of Vermont. Uh, okay. All this right. is a tremendous Vermont story. Um, somebody told me when I got started that there are two ideas that grew up in the late 60s in Vermont, uh, uh, two sort of projects or undertakings that that survived and thrive today. One of them is CCV and the other is VPR, Vermont Public Radio. Um, CCV grew out of, in the, I think the first classes were offered for free. Teachers were unpaid in uh, 1971, I think, or 70, no, I think it was 72. Um, and the idea was to, because Vermont has such a, a widely dispersed rural population, you couldn't build one community college and have it be accessible to everybody, especially in rural areas all over the state. So much rural poverty, people couldn't travel right. from Barton, Vermont to say Randolph in the center where Vermont Tech is to go to a community college. So instead, the community college would be a new kind of college, new kind of community college that is based in the communities, taught by people in the communities, people teaching things that they know, um, whether it would be law or uh, or I could teach writing or uh, or, or accounting or, or any number of things. Um, and it was initially non-degree, completely free, and kind of <laughs> very much looked down on by the real colleges in Vermont. But over the years, Vermont uh, CCB began offering associate degrees. And while they re remained very focused on meeting students where they are, there is a CCB learning center. There are 12 of them around the state within 25 miles of 95% of people in Vermont. And, and then there's the online learning center, which is a huge part of of CCB today. So you can go to college without leaving your home. Um, and so CCBs had to be very, very innovative. They were one of the first colleges to adopt online uh, courses in the, in the late 90s, when that was very, very new and different. They were one of the first colleges to create a dispersed uh, kind of a virtual online library, because that was what they had to do. Um, and they've been, and they've managed to remain um, this sort of, um, uh, student-centered, um, very, very flexible, very innovative and creative college uh, over all these years, as they even as they've become um, much more of a mature and respected um, uh, 
college today, they have the second largest student population in Vermont, second only to UVM. So that's a, it's a wonderful story. And uh, it's a creativity, innovation, um, and giving people a chance to get higher education that would never otherwise have it. You know, uh, people in rural poor, especially in urban poor, poor, but people all over the state who have had a chance at college, originally they were all adults, and now about half of CCB students are traditional age college students. Um, and uh, so, it is a it is a great story. And I'm 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 finishing it up. I'm close to the end of writing it. Um, and and I've been working on it for a couple of years, and it's it's a great project. That's amazing. You're just as passionate about that than you are about your other book, too. Oh yeah, I really like this story. This is a great story. And uh, and it you know for me. Um, uh, the chance to tell a positive story about Vermont, which, you know, a state I've lived in since the early 80s and really love and admire so many people who've done really positive, meaningful things, uh, in this case in higher education, it really, you know, we, we are seeing so much, um, obviously, so much um, hatred and, and division in this country, um, polarization in this country, and you read so much bad news and depressing news and you, you know, it's hard not to think, is everything falling apart? You know, is there any hope? And so these two, you know, this, this story um, is really a series of stories of hope of people working really hard over long periods of time and making positive change happen. And uh, so, yeah, for me, that's what I'm really grateful to be able to tell some of these stories right now. So, if somebody wants to find your book and somebody wants to read more of your, your books, what would be the best place that they could go? <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, these books like a catalyst for change just came out um, uh, two weeks ago. So right. it's available on any online outlet or hopefully your local bookstore. If they don't have it in stock, it is brand new. Uh, they can certainly get it. Um, and uh, so it's available wherever books are sold, as we say. Um, and, uh, uh, it's brand new, so so whether it's going to be in stock, uh, it, it is distributed by Ingram, a major distributor, um, and so you know anybody who wants it can, any bookstore who wants it can get it, and any any individual can get it. That's right. It was released in March 29th, 2022. Right. Yeah, March 29th. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know when your book comes out, it's always got a publication date, and at first when you kind of expect fireworks and celebrations. And after a while you realize it's just another day. It's just a day when the bookstores and the libraries can actually order it. Or if you're going on Amazon or another online site, when you can actually order it, that's right. just what it means. But it's kind of a cool thing anyway, to have that day come. Right. And then you also have your dougwilhelm.com. Is that a good spot? Yeah. yeah. I have my website and that's still focused on street of storytellers and my young adult stuff. I haven't put up, um, we need to put Catalyst for Change up there. Um, right. Yeah, yep. Um, you know, the um, the young adult novels were really my, they were my work for years and years. And uh, Street of Storytellers is what number 17. Uh, you and I mentioned before we went on, on the air that I wrote, um, I think it was 11 books for the Choose Your Own Adventure series. That's how I got started. And then after that, I moved on to just regular middle school and YA fiction. So uh, that's all, that's what, like my website is still devoted to uh, 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 the books. Uh, there was one book I had called The Revealers that, um, a, a story about middle school bullying that, right. that 
um, over a thousand schools have worked with, mostly with all school reads around the country. So a lot of the website is devoted to what schools have done with that book, you know, uh, materials they've developed, projects they've done, how other schools can pick up on that. Um, th and so that was really my my work for years and now moving on to the adult nonfiction it's 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 a nice change but i really still i still really i do do still do school visits and talk with young people and i still really really enjoy that wow. well great so we're at the top of the hour already doug so i told you it'd go by fast yeah it went by yeah. fast that's because i talk so much well you know what you need to do you need to come back on the show okay and talk about your yeah, your next book about CCV. So yeah, yeah. I don't have a publication date. I think we have a publisher, um, but I we're not at the point of signing, so I can't say for sure. But um, I hope to get we'll get that out next year. Um, that would be my hope because it's it's a it's a terrific story. But so I'd love to come back on. Thanks, Barney. Perfect. And, All right. Well, thank you very much, Doug. Yeah, it was really fun. It was great questions. Really interesting questions. Thanks for having me on this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.